0: Amen. I'm accepted. I'm forgiven. You just kind of stole all my thunder there. That's pretty much the sermon, but I guess I'll go ahead and preach it anyway. New Year. How many of you have already broken your New Year resolutions? Don't raise your hand. I'm sure a lot of you have already, yes, failed on your New Year's resolution. There's grace, you know. Our God is a God of grace and forgiveness. So uh, just keep at it. I'm sure we'll have a great year. The God who makes all things new. Thanks for that reminder, Rachel. That, that God does make things new. I appreciate the the Belmont paraphernalia, of course, as well uh, as a, a good bruin myself. The God who makes all things new is is bringing Woodmont into a new year, a new season. We've we've gone through 2017, and today we begin our, our first Sunday of 2018, and. Like I said, I, I believe this is a really important year for our church as we move forward into the next 75 years of our history. We've, we've turned that page, like I said, on the, the old 75 years, and we've had a kind of a gap year where we dwelled in the, the, the Word, we read through the Bible together, and I got one of the most amazing text messages from a church member who took a picture of his list, his, his checklist of all the readings. The 365 readings for the year, and he had marked off each day, and on December 31st, he texted me a picture of it and said, it is finished. <laughs> but now we're embarking on this, this next 75 years, this next 100 years, this next 150 years, <laughs> of Woodmont's existence. I can't imagine the facilities guy, Ron, is going to have to take care of this place in 150 years. You think it's old then, falling apart now. Man. (laughs) Some of us may be here present for our 100th anniversary, 2041. I don't know. Maybe, Lord willing, you'll be here in 25 years. Only 24 years now. Some of you, maybe my own kids, could even be here for the 150th anniversary of Woodmont Baptist Church in 2091. It seems crazy to imagine that, but Isaiah, our youngest, will be 75 in 2091. That's young, isn't it, for a lot of our folks? That's nothing, right? Alberta, that's 75. That's like, that's that's nothing. May will be 79. Jude'll be 81 in 2091. Can you believe that? 80, 81, 80, 82. He'll be 82. Correct me. That's right. 82. <laughs> what kind of church will my children see if they're present at our 150th celebration in 2091? What kind of place will Woodmont be in 150 years? It's, it's crazy to think about, but the truth is that we've been given this amazing opportunity to shape the trajectory of where this church is headed for the next chapter of its life. We get to discern together what God is up to in our city, in our community, and in our church body as a whole. And then we get to figure out how we can join Him in it as we collectively move Woodmont into the next 75, 100, 150 years of her life of her long-storied life. And throughout this year, I I feel like the Lord is going to be leading us into this great adventure together of discernment and and figuring out what He's doing and how we can be a part of it as a church. And I really want us to focus this whole year on on who we as Woodmont Baptist Church are called to be. What does the Lord have in store for us? What is He calling us to do and be here on this corner in 2018, in Green Hills, in Nashville, in Tennessee, around the world? What is He asking us to do and to be in this next chapter of our lives? To start with, I feel like it's going to be beneficial for us to to spend some intentional time trying to understand what God's original purpose and design for the church is is in the first place. What is is church meant to be? What is the the body of Christ supposed to be about? Well, there's no better book of the Bible to learn about these things than from the letter to the Ephesians that Paul has written to this church in Ephesus. You see, Ephesians is unlike any other of Paul's letters. You know, in, in most of Paul's letters, he he writes addressing very specific kinds of issues that these congregations were facing. Sometimes he's trying to squash some kinds of rebellious heresy, some kind of false teaching that has crept into the church, and he's trying to to put it down. Sometimes he's trying to, to deal with some power struggle and control issues in the church. Other times he's Dealing with these horribly sinful situations that he discovers are happening in the lives of the congregations that he's dealing with. Sometimes pastors have to deal with that kind of stuff. But Ephesians doesn't contain any sort of of this kind of specific instruction. Paul's not dealing with some kind of situation here at the church in Ephesus, he's not giving correction for some issue. Instead, Ephesians is this sweeping summary of the Gospel and and how the, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ impacts the body of Christ, us, the church. How it changes us from the inside out and how the Gospel builds us into the household of God. We have a lot of architects in our church. We're very blessed with a lot of architects. Logan, Gary, Steve, I see you three right there. Jeff, I see you right here in the middle as well. We, I'm missing a bunch, I know, but we have an unusual amount of per capita architects in this church. I think it's just weird, but awesome as well at the same time. I'm very grateful for them on a Habitat build. Man, Jeff Hammer, he's he's great to know where walls go, and I don't know any. I can tell you some Greek words, but I don't know where anything goes in a, in a house, but It's awesome to have all these architects. What we're going to be talking about these next two months is how God has designed, how He's crafted the the blueprints, the plans for the household of God, the church, you and me, the body of Christ that is being built into this glorious structure. You know, the Ephesians had this temple of Artemis. Artemis Diana in in, in Latin. She was the the goddess of Ephesus. their, Their token goddess. And they built this huge temple to her. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And inside that temple was stored all these precious artifacts. Some of the most valuable art in the world was stored in the temple of Diana. But the household of God... Is, is also being built with incredible riches that are stored in it. And we're going to discover those riches today as we dive into this work. The, the temple of God, the household of faith that is the people of God, is also put together intricately, it, intentionally, for a purpose. We're going to spend two months looking at all those different elements of this house that is being built in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that in Ephesians in chapter 6 Paul tells us that he's in prison when he's writing this letter. He's under house arrest in Rome awaiting trial in Rome where he has appealed to Caesar Augustus. And we know that this is the end of his life. We know that he's an older man by this point. That that he has run the race as he says to Timothy. He's fought the good fight. poured out his life like a drink offering on the altar of Jesus Christ. So there's a a certain kind of wisdom and insight that this older Paul has gained over the decades since his initial conversion on that road to Damascus where he encountered the the risen Christ and was was blinded and led to the town of Damascus. There's a kind of wisdom, right? Right? Some of our senior adults could attest to this. A kind of insight that comes from the experience of just life decade after decade that us younger folks, I still think I'm younger, maybe not to some of you guys, but thanks, Pokey, I appreciate it. I'm still young, (laughs) but we have a lot to learn, don't we, Pokey? from a lot of these older people in our church. I appreciate this encouraging nod. You're young, man. Yeah. We have a lot to learn from the wisdom of the older folks, and by this point in Paul's life, he's one of them. By this point in his life, he's actually had the time to to verify that his doctrine of Jesus Christ will actually hold up and stand firm against the trials of this life. What he believes about the Lord Jesus Christ is real because he's lived it and he's proved it over and over that Christ will never abandon him. That on Christ the solid rock, Paul stands. And all other ground is sinking sand. Life will teach you that over and over. So this letter is really different from his other writings. One commentary I read said that Ephesians (coughs) itself is like a commentary on all of Paul's letters. It's what C. H. Dodd, the great Bible scholar, called the crown of Paulinism. Ephesians gives us this sweeping picture of, of Paul's theology from start to finish, which he is now at the finish. So what we're going to do is look at this letter in depth over the next two months. And, and, and we know that, that in Paul's writings, he's established this idea that Christ is superior to all other powers, right? That Christ has been the cosmic ruler that God has sent to earth And has become the key component in God's plan to redeem all things back unto Himself. That's been well established in letters like the ones to the Colossians, right? But now in Ephesians, it's like Paul is asking the the so what question. Yes, Christ is the cosmic ruler of all the the world and all the, the powers and principalities are subject to Him. But so what? What does it mean for us, for the the church today, for the people who are found in Christ? What's what's this amazing work of Christ mean for you and me today? What is the church's relation now to to this cosmic work of, of Christ and his cosmic role? What's our relationship to the powers and principalities of this world then? What's our relation to God's eternal purpose for all things? How do we fit into that plan? Come on Wednesday nights, this next two months too, we'll be talking about that as well. And and the way that this letter is designed is is a carefully structured letter, just like the household of God is carefully structured. The the first three chapters are really this this long, except for verses one and two, the, the rest of it is kind of this long prayer, of praise and blessing and thanksgiving for all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus in building the church. It's a real deeply theological section. It, it's all about these doctrines of the church and how God has established and built the church in Jesus Christ. Then the last three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are about how we then should live in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ as the keystone, as the cornerstone in that building, how then should we live? The, the first three sections are about the doctrine. The, the next three chapters are about our duty, our response to that, those doctrines. It's, it's a beautiful letter, like I said. We're probably not going to finish the, the whole thing because I really want to take this slowly Last year, I felt like we were kind of flying through some of those books of the Bible. We didn't really get a chance to unpack them in depth. So we're only going to look at a a few verses each week. And we're going to start at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. So if you're able to this morning, I invite you to stand in honor of God's Word as we read the first eight verses of the letter to the Ephesians. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So like any good letter, Ephesians begins with an introduction. The first two verses here are the prescript. script It's a typical Pauline kind of introduction to his letters. He identifies himself as Christ Apostle. The word in Greek is apostolos. It means a messenger. One who has good news to tell. And we know that Paul wasn't one of the 12 apostles, right? But he became an apostle, especially an apostle to the Gentiles on that road to Damascus when Christ appeared to him and made him from this zealot persecuting the church of Jesus into an apostle of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, a messenger to carry the good news to the Gentiles. And it wasn't Paul who chose Christ, he says. It it wasn't any of us who chose Christ first. It was Christ who chose us. It was by God's will, not Paul's will, he says here in the first little introduction. That's important to remember. Why? Because we take no credit for this. It's all God who has built this house. It is not us who do the building. It is God who does it. And to whom is Paul writing this letter? Does he send it to the sinners who are in Ephesus? Does he send it to the the ragtag group of struggling Christians who are weak and faltering in their newfound faith? Is it, is it to those people who rarely attend church, who stop reading their Bibles, they don't tithe, they don't volunteer in their church, they, they don't really spend time in prayer? Is he writing to the, the backsliders? Is he writing to the hypocrites? To the religious but not real spiritual? Is that who he's writing to? No! This letter is addressed to the saints. To the saints. The the word in Greek is hagiois and it literally means the holy ones. To the holy ones who are in Ephesus. To the saints. So which one are you? Are you a sinner? are you a saint? I'm sure most of us would readily admit that we're sinners. We learned that at VBS, right? Admit you're a sinner. We're sinners, right? You know, I have a lot of hardcore Reformed friends from seminary that are big in this Presbyterian tradition. I don't know how many of you grew up Presbyterian, but they're, they're big on this idea that it's not really Calvin's idea. It's kind of a hyper-Calvinism. That we are totally depraved. We are completely horrible, wretched people that are completely incapable of doing anything good. I, I, I think that may be taking Calvin to the extreme. I'm sure you're all far too humble to claim sainthood, right? I'm no saint. I'm no saint. Well, if that's you, if you claim not to be a saint, I'm not sure this letter has a lot for you. It's addressed to the saints, to the holy ones, not to the sinners. You see, I I think some of my my misguided, maybe hyper-Calvinist friends might be missing the boat on how we identify ourselves as the body of Christ. Because this letter is addressed to the holy ones, to the saints. I think that when God comes and gets a hold of your life, when the hound of heaven pursues you, and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart and He comes in and transforms you, then you are a new creation and behold, the old has gone. The new has come, as Rachel just told our kids. Is that just something we tell our children, or do we believe it for ourselves as adults, as grown ups? Do we believe that when we accept his free gift of salvation that's offered by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that he then is faithful to come in and remove our sins as far as East is from the West? That's what the Bible says. Do we believe that He's done that in our hearts? To, to claim that our identity now is, is primarily that of a sinner is, is really to deny our sainthood. And, and then that calls into question the efficacy in the first place of Christ's sacrifice to, to remove our sins, to atone for all of our sins, past, present, and future. You know, I, I love coaching. I've always loved coaching. I just, it's so fun for me. I've gotten the privilege and the opportunity of coaching teenagers and children in, in basketball for at least 15 years now. And, and I, I love taking a group of kids that, that see themselves as unathletic, as uncoordinated, as, as losers, and helping them to see that they can accomplish so much more together than they ever actually dreamed they could I love to see kids start to get it that they actually could do something more than what they ever imagined they could do I'm coaching Jude's basketball team we had our first game yesterday that was fun we we won by the the mercy rule which I felt horrible about at halftime I had to give a speech that I've never given before I said hey how would you guys feel if you were down by 20 at halftime (laughs) be nice and I, you know, a lot of times, uh, when, when a kid who thinks of themselves as, I, I can't play basketball, I'm not an athlete, but when they make that first basket, or when they get that first steal on defense, w- when they win that first game, things start to click in their heads, right? They start to believe that they might actually be something that they never thought they were in the first place. You know, my, my junior year of college, A friend and I agreed to coach a group of 7th through ninth grade girls from First Baptist Nashville downtown in church league basketball. And this group of girls were hilarious, and they were very spirited and and fun, but uh, they were terribly undersized and uh, horribly inexperienced. We had one girl on our team who had played a little volleyball, and, and she was, you know, our star, really. The rest of the girls had never played organized sports besides a little t-ball as toddlers and a little soccer. And that was it. Whenever a girl from the opposing team came dribbling towards one of our girls, they would just get out of the way, you know, and not want to have any kind of contact or, or anything like that. And we were horrible that first year, man. It was, it was painful. We, I think we scored double digits twice that whole year. We actually hit 10 points in a game two times. We never won a game, 0-10 on the season. But the very next year, we took that exact same group of girls, no personnel changes, and maybe aided in part by a few key growth spurts. But we took that same group of girls, practiced hard, told them constantly that they could do it, and that they could actually do these things. And they they started to run plays. They started to, to set hard screens and to to shoot correctly and to pass and to cut and to box out and rebound and and they started to believe these things and see that it worked. They were forcing people to their left and causing turnovers and it was awesome. Playing team defense, we started winning some games. That season, the second year, we, we had only lost two games the whole season. We went all the way to the championship game and lost by two in the championship game, which devastated me. But our girls didn't care. They just loved to be there. They just loved, they were in a championship game. That was enough for them. It was awesome. It was awesome to see them grow into these winners who believed that they could do it. You know, how you perceive yourself matters. When Notre Dame's football team runs through the tunnel to come out on the field, they slap a sign. What does that sign say, you know? Play like a champion today. They're not champions, but they can play like a champion today right how you perceive yourself matters if you and i only see ourselves as dirty wretched sinners how do you think we're prone to behave how do you think we're prone to actually acting but we can through god's grace learn to see ourselves as god sees us as all those things we just sang: i'm forgiven i'm accepted I'm redeemed. All those things. If, if we can see ourselves as the beloved children of God. You know, we don't judge Jude if he throws the ball out of bounds. I don't disassociate from him at that point. I don't cease to give him my love. God doesn't cease to give you his love either as a child of God. If we can see ourselves that way, then we're far more likely to live like God. A, a holy person. A holy and redeemed child of God. So again, the Bible tells us that God sees us through the blood of Christ. When He sees us, He doesn't see a mess up. He doesn't see a mistake. He doesn't see someone who's a backslider or not good enough or doesn't pray enough or give enough money or, or time. He sees a beloved child because the, the church is, is now the beautiful, precious, perfected bride of Christ. Revelation teaches us that, right? The last four chapters of Revelation show us that the church is the beautiful bride of Christ whom He has made presentable. He has made acceptable. He has made beautiful and perfect by His grace. You know, if we can learn to accept that, then maybe we can live as holy ones now. Do you know what holy means? Holy means set apart. It means other than. It means separate from that which is common and profane in this world. We are different now from the common things of this world. We're set apart, consecrated for a reason. And we're not different so we can feel superior. We're not different so we can one day escape this nasty world. That's not why we're different. We're different so we can make a difference. Woodmont must not self-identify as a nice church. We can't just be seen as the church on TV or the church that takes a few mission trips each year. That can't be our identity. We have to be radically different from the world so that we can truly make a difference for the kingdom of God. This can only happen if each one of us begins to accept The reality, the deeper, real reality that God has indeed cleansed us from all unrighteousness and given us everything we need now to go out from this place today and live lives of holiness, blameless in His sight, in the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us now as God's children. Goodness, that's just the first two verses. I told you this was going to take a while this year. This is why we're taking smaller chunks. Let's let's move on. Verse 3 starts one of the longest sentences in in the Greek New Testament. Our English versions break this section up into four or five verses, but in Greek, it's actually one beautiful, expansive sentence that is itself a a prayer of, of blessing unto God. Why should God be blessed? Why does Paul start out with, praise here in his letter? What has he done that we should turn our hearts towards him in praise? Well, he says here in verse 3 that we bless God because he has blessed us first. He has blessed us with what? With every spiritual blessing. What are spiritual blessings? Well, spiritual bless- blessings are different than material blessings. Some of you say, well, I'd rather have the material blessings. Thanks. (laughs) Spiritual blessings? Okay, but I'd rather have a new car. Thanks. (laughs) Give me the material blessings. But you know, secular science has shown that material blessings do not bring happiness. Material blessings cannot help us flourish and thrive as we ultimately long and desire to do. Material blessings only go so far in meeting the desires of our hearts. They leave us empty in the long run and they do not last, ultimately. Spiritual blessings. What are are spiritual blessings? What kind of blessings are we talking about here? We're talking about the unlimited spiritual blessings. It says here in verse three, he's given us every spiritual blessing. Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible teacher and preacher tells an old story about a little orphan boy who was found roaming the city streets a long time ago and was taken to a hospital. And after the nurses had bathed him and dressed him, they they put him to bed and brought him a dinner tray. And right in the middle of that dinner tray was a large glass of milk. And the boy's eyes lit up as he reached for the glass. But then he paused and he looked at the nurses and he asked a question that broke their hearts. He said, can I drink all of it? You see, where the boy had come from, there had never been enough. There had always been a scarcity, a lack of resources. That was what he was used to. It reminds you of the story of the lady who stood on the, the edge of California looking over the, the Pacific Ocean and said, ah, it's finally good to see something there's plenty of. Wiersbe says that too many Christians are living like paupers when Christ has made us rich by giving us every spiritual blessing? Isn't it time that we stopped living on substitutes, even good religious substitutes, and started drawing on this infinite resource of riches that Christ has given to us? So here's a key question. What value do you place on spiritual blessings? What what value do you assign to these spiritual blessings? How do they stack up for you compared to material blessings? It's important to remember that the church is not a building. We have a beautiful building here. But the church ultimately is not even people. The church is a spiritual entity that has been redeemed and set apart and made holy. It's a spiritual reality more than a physical one. Does that make it any less real? Do you really believe in your heart that there's a deeper spiritual reality that is more real than the things that we can perceive through our five senses in this world today? Let's look further at this idea. What what other spiritual blessings do we have? Keep reading. Verse 4 and 5 say that before the world was made, God chose us. It says that in in love, He predestined us. We don't have time to get into the whole predestination thing. If you want to go get coffee with me and talk about it, I'd love to. It says that He predestined us to become His very own sons and daughters. How does He do that? It says here, by adopting us through the adoption price of His Son, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture of the Gospel adoption is. The first time I met Trey, we went to coffee at the Good Cup in Franklin, and, and he said that when he was in college, it just hit him so hard how the Lord has adopted us. Romans 8 talks about how we've been adopted into the family of God. And when that clicked for Trey, it changed everything in how he perceived God the Father and his relationship to Him. It's a beautiful thing to legally become part of a family. Trey has two adopted sisters, they, they've taken on the Haman name. They have also share now in Trey's inheritance. Even though Trey's a biological son, they're just as much part of the family as he is. They, they take on the identity of that family. It's a powerful reminder of what's happened to us in Christ Jesus. When someone is adopted, it changes them. They, they take on the identity of the family they've been adopted into. And it says here that we've been adopted into God's family. We've been chosen for adoption in order, why? To be holy, it says, and blameless before a holy and blameless father. We're now different. We're now set apart. We're now consecrated for God and for His good purposes. This amazing grace that has accomplished our adoption, this unmerited, undeserved unearned gift of salvation that we've received is shown itself to be worthy of praise. That's a a theme that runs throughout this letter. That God's matchless grace should be praised because it's so amazing. So He's adopted us in love. He's set us apart as part of His royal family. That's enough right there, right? To warrant our giving our lives away To him. But what else are these so called spiritual blessings that you speak of? Well, verse 7 and 8 say that in him, in Christ the Beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. How do people in our society today show the world that they're rich? Buy a fancy house? Drive a fancy car? Put some big rims on it? Wear fancy clothes? Fancy shoes? Richard and I were walking around the mall down here, and he said, look at this. We we walked by Nordstrom. He picked up a pair of shoes, and, you know, they look like shoes, you know, normal shoes. $3,000 $3,000 for a pair of shoes. I can't imagine wearing $3,000 shoes. I'd be a nervous wreck about scuffing them or spilling something on them. I'm kind of clumsy. Am I tripping them? I can't imagine in this kind of society the, 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 the riches that you're showing to the world. Paul says here that God has lavished his riches on us, that he has spent wildly. God went on a spending spree when He redeemed you and me. He's showing the world the vastness of His reserves of spiritual blessings. He has chosen us. He's adopted us. He's accepted us as sons and daughters. He's redeemed us by paying the price that we could never have paid on our own. He's forgiven us. These riches must be the foundation for the church. It's easy to look around each week and say, I didn't like that song or I didn't get a lot out of that sermon or such and such church down the road has an espresso machine. One of the Hodges girls got an espresso machine for Christmas, right? They, churches have espresso machines. Maybe we should have one of those. But none of that stuff can sustain a church. None of that stuff will ultimately move the church into the next hundred years. The the Bride of Christ in reality has been spoiled not by the latest church trends but by the Groom Himself. He has lavished on us these unbelievable blessings that keep us eternally praising, eternally grateful, eternally going forward when we're tempted to despair and turn back. If, If we will let Him build His church on these foundational spiritual Blessings, then there's no telling what Woodmont Baptist Church may accomplish in the next 75 years. You know, when you first learn to play basketball, we got a kid in our team this year who's never played before. You start with the fundamentals dribbling, passing, shooting, defense, the basics. When you learn to read, my wife's a teacher, she taught first grade for five years. You start with the sounds that the letters make. When you try to get healthy, a lot of you New Year's resolutioners as Gary talks about, the resolutioners, you start with what you eat. It starts with food, right? When you build a house, you architects no, you have to level the dirt and build a foundation. When you build a church, you start with the spiritual realities of the blessings we have in Christ. The unseen heavenly blessings that are more real and and more relevant to what we do than any program, than any pastor or staff member, than any style of worship, than any mission endeavor that we take on, than any budget that we may come across. I pray that Woodmont Baptist Church this year will really embrace the riches that God has bestowed on us more and more fully. And that we'll learn to let those riches be the starting point, the foundation for all that we are, in all that we do. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for building us into your glorious house. We thank you for showing us the blueprints, the designs that you have for your intentions for this household of faith. We pray that you would help us to understand the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis' story about the boy who wants to make mud pies in the slums because he has no idea what a holiday at the beach could be like. God, forgive us for settling for material blessings. Help us to learn to feast on the riches that you have given us. That we are indeed redeemed when we could never have saved ourselves. That you pulled us out of the pit and out of the mire. That. You have made us into sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, the ultimate price for adoption that You did not spare. That we now share an inheritance with Jesus Christ Himself because we are sons and daughters along with Him, co-heirs of the promise. God, such knowledge is too wonderful for us to really fathom. I pray that You would help us to see with the eyes of our hearts the truth of these spiritual realities that are our in Christ Jesus. May we as a church learn more and more to build on the foundation that you have established for this church, the fact that you have set us apart to be holy and blameless through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his powerful name that we pray now. Amen. If you've never accepted Christ as Lord, if you've never uh, accepted the free gift of salvation that he offers uh, through Jesus Christ, by grace, through faith, I invite you to come and talk with me about that now. There's no better time to do it than now. If you want to join to this household of faith, become a member of Woodmont Baptist Church today and join in what God's doing here officially through membership, I'd love to talk with you about that as well. Whatever your decision you need to make today, maybe you, you, you think of yourself as a sinner and you can't really fathom the idea that you're a saint. That you're a redeemed child of God. Maybe that's something you need to let go of today. Maybe you just need to turn that over to God and say, God, I accept that you accept me. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, we claim that it's more powerful than any sin that you're going through, than any hurt, any habit or hang-up that you're going through, any kind of addiction, any kind of past trauma that you've had in your life, that the blood of Christ is effective to cover it all and to make you new as a new creation, as you leave this place today to live a holy and blameless life through the Holy Spirit. Let's stand and sing the truth that we are redeemed, how we love to proclaim that we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb.